Well, good morning. So good to see you here this morning, and thank you for joining us if you're online as well. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Ecclesiastes. Again, Ecclesiastes in your Old Testament. Chapter 8, verse 16 is our starting place. And if you don't have a Bible in your hands, Pastor Seth back there has like five of them in his hands. Just raise your hand real quick and he'll get you a Bible. Turn to page 544. Anybody? Going once, going twice. All right, Ecclesiastes 8, 16 through 9, 9 today. Almost every day, we hear of somebody dying. Either someone you know, or someone who's well-known. I was just thinking this week, uh, in the less than two months of 2021 now, we've heard of the deaths of Larry King, Dustin Diamond, an actor who lived here in Port Washington, uh, Tommy Lasorda, well-known baseball coach, this past week, Rush Limbaugh. We've had four funerals hosted here in the past 12 months. You know of others. I, I heard someone this week talk about a, a relative who took their own life. Death is all around us. And we can't escape the reality, and our passage today is much about death. And you would think that therefore this passage would be kind of depressing. When in fact, Solomon's point was exactly the opposite. He's, he makes the, I hope, hope if you've been following our study, a now familiar theme has been in spite of what is so messed up in the world. We should enjoy life. And so today the idea is that if indeed we are facing death, and we are with this cloud of death over us, we should be enjoying every day. And the reason that Solomon gives is not the one that we know is the biggest reason, and that is if you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, you know you'll be in heaven one moment after you die. That's not Solomon's point. His point is that God's gift of life is so wonderful that we should be enjoying every day just because God gave us that life. So he begins really what seems to be like a series of steps to enjoying life. And in the last two verses of chapter 18 would be this first step, admit that no one knows fully God's sovereign plan. So in other words, releasing our efforts to try to understand everything about God. When I applied my mind to know wisdom and to observe man's labor on earth, his eyes not seeing sleep day or night, then I saw all that God has done, all his works. No one can comprehend what goes on under the sun. Despite all his efforts to search it out, man cannot discover its meaning. Even if a wise man claims he knows, he cannot really comprehend it. It seems clearly that Solomon tried to figure out God, his purposes, his plans. And I think he refers to himself, actually some translations say, even though one sees sleep day or night, he kind of refers to himself in the third person, I think, in this passage. 
So he has stayed awake, trying to figure out what are God's plans? What are God's purposes? I, I can't put it all together. And as he already described earlier in this book, he's described the injustices, the oppression, and the emptiness of all the different pursuits of man. And in light of that, and perhaps all the hard, bad stuff that happens, he said, I applied my mind. And we know, 1 Kings 3, verse 12, when Solomon began his reign, God said, I will give you a wise and discerning heart so that there will never have been anyone like you and never will be. So he's the smartest man, the wisest man ever. And he couldn't figure it out. So, who are we to think that we can figure out God's sovereign plan? We don't know why God does what he does. And that's clearly the issue here is what God does. You notice that in verse 16? It's what God does. What God does. What God allows. So he doesn't let God off the hook and say, well, you know, some of these things just happen. Like, like life, is, life is all random and we can't really figure it all out. He doesn't say it's random. He says God controls it all. There, there, was, a, there was a thought in early American history of deism, a kind of a philosophy or you could say a non-Christian theology. And in this thought, it was that God was, God was the creator. They believed that God was a creator, but this creator was one that started everything and put it into motion, but then it kind of just runs on its own like a clock that you, that you wind up. And so he says, it's, it's not that. It's that God really controls all things. So have you grappled with that? Have you grappled with the thought that God controls everything, some things he allows? It doesn't, mean that we, it doesn't mean that we are not responsible for what we do. It means God controls everything, even the mistakes, the sin of people's lives. So, the first issue is that God controls everything. And we have to admit that we are not in control. So, if verses 16 and 17 of the end of chapter 8 tell us that God controls everything that God does. It's interesting in the opening verses of the next chapter, and remember when a book was written, they didn't, Solomon wasn't writing chapter 9, this is verses 1, 2, 3, just as one continuous document. If God controls everything God does, now he says God controls everything man does. That can be a little unsettling. How does God control everything man does? Verse Chapter 9, verse 1. So I reflected on all this and concluded that the righteous and the wise and what they do, their works. What's the next phrase? What the righteous and the wise do are in God's hands. But no man knows whether love or hate awaits him. So not only does God control what God does, God controls what even the righteous and the wise do. So he's narrowed the focus to say, let's talk about you and me. We, you're here worshiping today. You're, you're watching online. You have your Bibles open because you really care about what God thinks. You're, you're seeking to follow God. You're looking at his word. And so what about us as the righteous and the wise? Do we control our own fate, if you will? And he says, even the things that we do are in God's hands. He, he is purposely unsettling us. Because the next line even says, 
But no man knows whether love or hate awaits him. So even though you are seeking to do the right things as a righteous and wise person, you really don't know how life is going to turn out, how good, how much blessing, how much suffering. In fact, these two terms about love and hate, if this is applying to how God sees us, we would say, well, then God doesn't love everybody. But there was, a, there was a way to say this, to use the words love and hate in the Hebrew language where everybody understood what he was talking about was sometimes there's blessing and sometimes there is suffering. Uh, some of you may be acquainted with what it says in the Old Testament prophet Malachi chapter 1. It says, God says, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. That makes us a little uncomfortable, Right? But the idea is not that he hated like we think we just hate somebody. It rather means that I have chosen in a special way to bless Jacob and I didn't choose to bless Esau in that way. And so God is maintaining his sovereignty and saying, it is my choice. So even the righteous and the wise, hopefully that's you, are in God's hands. And you don't know how blessed or how much suffering you will experience. It sure, it sure teaches us not to judge someone who's suffering. Because this is exactly what Job, or rather Job's so-called friends did, if you are acquainted with the book of Job. And God rebuked them because they kept saying over and over, Job, you're experiencing such horrible things, obviously you are a great sinner and you need to repent. When we know the backstory was that there was this incredible spiritual test that God was about, and it had nothing to do with Job's sin. A lot of you are acquainted with the name Johnny Erickson, or Johnny Erickson Tata. She had a diving accident at 18 that left her a lifelong quadriplegic. I heard her speak at a pastor's conference maybe 15 years ago or so, and I just saw something this last week where she's speaking at a large virtual uh, women's conference. She's still a quadriplegic. Many people prayed for her healing, and, and uh, she's now 71 years old. Through the years, her, her books, uh, her art, painting with her mouth, her, uh, the movie made of her life in the earlier years, organizations she has launched, her music, have inspired and encouraged generations of people going through difficulties. And then in 2010, she was diagnosed with stage 3 breast cancer and has survived. And then I was reading just a couple of months ago, guess who got COVID? Johnny Erickson. Here's what she's quoted as saying in the Christian Post. What COVID meant for evil... Christ meant for good. My faith has widened. My hopes are higher. My love for Jesus has skyrocketed. My appreciation for others has deepened, and God's promises are cemented further into my soul. This is how Christ meant COVID for my good. And the article continues. While she had to go to the emergency room so she could receive an antibody infusion, she took solace in the fact that her trip to the hospital enabled more people to experience the joy of the gospel, which her husband Ken shared with the hospital staff. We have an example living among us 
of accepting the sovereignty of God, regardless of how much suffering, quote, or blessing, quote, unquote, we think we are experiencing. And so we are called to not judge and to leave these things in God's hand, admit that we don't fully control what God does, nor can we even control what happens in our own life, though we are responsible for our obedience. And none of this negates what Solomon has written so carefully about in Proverbs, where he has described how generally God blesses obedience. And, and, and he said over and over, you live longer if you, if you live in obedience because you won't put yourself in all these dangerous situations, for one thing. So while our decisions matter, God has this sovereign control, mastery of our lives. So if it's true of how life turns out, now it comes to the subject of death. All share a common destiny. This is 9 verse 2. All share a common destiny, the righteous and the wicked, the good and the bad, the clean and the unclean, those who offer sacrifices and those who do not. As it is with a good man, so it is with the sinner, and, if it, and it is with those who take oaths, so with those who are afraid to take them. He's like listed everything that the Old Testament kind of would tell you to do. And he says, guess what? This is the evil, verse 3, that happens under the sun. The same destiny overtakes all. The hearts of men, moreover, are full of evil, and there is madness in their hearts while they live. And afterward, they join the dead. I thought about titling this message, We're All Gonna Die. Thought it maybe came across a little bit negative, but it's true. And in the context of resting in God's hands, verse 1, we realize that ultimately we are all going to die. So, being good doesn't spare you from suffering if it doesn't spare you from death. We're all going to face that eventuality. Only two people in the Bible, Enoch and Elijah, ever escaped death, and those of us who will be taken in the rapture if he comes today, not a bad idea, would escape death, but otherwise we face death. So if God's blessing was based on being really good and all suffering was because we were bad, then the logic is, is flawed if we think that because we do all die. So can't point fingers, can't puff up in pride because we feel particularly blessed. Death is the great equalizer. It's part of this evil that has happened, verse 3, under the sun, the same destiny overtakes but here's what else verse 3 tells us you would think that the fear of death would drive, drive people to, to turn to the God who controls all things but does that happen the hearts of men this is, this is now a generality this is the majority of, of mankind on the globe the hearts of men moreover are full of evil and there's madness in their hearts while they live and afterward they join the dead Has the heightened fear of dying this past year caused a massive revival around the globe? No. Isolated individuals? Yes. But 
Now the hearts of men are still filled with madness, if you will. The term in the Hebrew means blind, foolish thinking, or we would call it insanity. Mankind is still following the same madness that, that has been described throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. Where he says, this is vanity, this is vanity, this is empty, this ends up... Everything that man tries, the pursuit of money, the pursuit of pleasure, the pursuit of power, the pursuit of, of intelligence. In the early chapters, he says, I tried it all. He had it all. And it all ended up empty. And so why would someone think that they could... Some, somehow we convince ourselves, really, that somehow we will be the exception to the emptiness that everybody else experiences. That if I experience this pleasure, this, buy this thing, if I... If I, if I sign to buy this, or click it, or, or go on this vacation, or, or sneak in that hidden tre- pleasure, I, I will somehow escape. But he says, no. Insanity, this is cliche, right? Insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results, and yet that's really how mankind is living. Because whatever they pursue, says afterwards they just join the dead. This, this is really the rock bottom of the, of the passage. It doesn't get lower than this, Okay. This is the rock bottom of his logic intended to force us to acknowledge God's sovereign control. God did not put this in his word to depress us. He put it there to humble us. To release our hands and say, I I get it. I am not in control of what you do. I can't even control the outcomes of what I do. So now what? It's like he brings us to a point of saying, will you listen to me for a change? And so we say, yes, I'm listening, Lord. So what do we do? He says, well, remember this, verse 4. He picks this up. Anyone who's among the living has hope. Confidence I had today is that whether you're listening here or online, you're living, okay? So you have hope. In fact, this word hope is, is an exceptionally positive, optimistic word. A confident expectation. In fact, one Hebrew dictionary defines this word as feeling hopeful about the future. This is, this is to be normal life for the righteous and the wise. To have confidence, feeling hopeful about the future. Are you kidding? He didn't know about 2020, did he? Sadly, a lot of Christians have lost hope for the future, just like the world. Maybe for different reasons, maybe because we know more, but there's a sense of lost hope. But what he's telling us is, if we're alive, it's because God wants us alive. God's will is for you to be alive, if you're alive. I know that's basic, but depression clouds a lot of people's thinking. There is a dark emotional place some of you have or are experiencing it, where we lose hope. And I would urge you to seek professional help because suicide is never the answer. I remember being a kid growing up in our church and 
first time I heard of somebody taking their own life was this uh, retired school teacher who was a spiritual leader in our church. And uh, Sunday school teacher, and he lost hope. Surprised everybody to lose him. Here's the spiritual issue. There's, there's a lot of layers of problems. That's why you need to seek help. But there, here's what God is reaching out with in gentle, clear whispers. I want you alive. That's why you are alive. And if God is the one who controls everything God does, God's the one who is giving you hope to say, I have a future for you. I have a future in mind for you, and it's not the future that might be clouding your mind. I have a plan for you. It's interesting that at this, with this kind of dark thinking and exhortation of Solomon, his next line almost seems to be intentionally humorous. He gives a, gives a, gives a little proverb. Anyone who's among the living has hope. Even a live dog is better than a dead lion. I think we're supposed to chuckle because dogs were, dogs were not the, the, the loved pets that you have in that society. They were pretty much the scavengers, the, the kickable people who, uh, people, animals who, who you threw some scraps to and, and, and you, you didn't like them. Lions were, you know, the king of the jungle, kind of like our Disney view. So he was really comparing people and saying, you can you, you have person who's very poor, very much of a commoner, and then you can have royalty, celebrity, wealthy people. What would you rather be? Better, better alive and poor than rich and dead. And we go, yeah, I guess so. Would you trade places with Abraham Lincoln right now? Not right now. So we get the idea that life matters. So he brings us back to reality and he says, but we're going to die and be forgotten. For the living know that they will die. So at least <laughs> you got that. You know something, but the dead know nothing. They have no further reward and even the memory of them is forgotten. Their love, their hate, and their jealousy have long since vanished. Never again will they have a part in anything that happens under the sun. Under the sun is his description because Solomon is making it clear that this is an inspired book by God. He, he wants us to think about this life under the sun. And again, we know of their amazing, glorious future we have in heaven forever as believers in Christ. Our study of prophecy or study of the New Testament, study of the gospel is all about knowing we will have new life and we will live forever in heaven if we have placed our faith in the Son of God, Jesus, who died in our place. We get that. Because I want you to just focus on the days you have here. There's a time to, to not be thinking about that yet, but to think about what is left here. But he says, at least you know that you're going to die, but someday you need to know you're going to be dead and forgotten. Last week before we were in Kansas, as some of you know, uh, for a few days, and we drove past the cemetery where, uh, first of all, where Priscilla's parents are buried, who passed away in the 90s. And I, I went out and snapped a picture of the, the headstone in the snow, and, and later on I got to see my parents' headstone. I hadn't seen it in person uh, yet, and 
got a picture of it in the, in the snow. They passed away in 2019. And then I come back and I'm studying this. I'm thinking, how soon people will forget what they were like, what their laughs sounded like, what, what they were good at, their personalities. It begins to drift and... And, and our generation, the adult kids, we're getting older, and so when we're gone, I mean, really, their love, their hate, their jealousy, what they were about will be forgotten. Does he say that to depress us? No, we've seen he says it to humble us. Now he actually says it to transform or encourage us or perhaps give us a little kick to say, so what about the days you have left? Don't waste them. There's a radical shift as we come to verse 7. We've been, we, I mean, he, he's, been, he's been taking us down with the certainty of death and you're going to be forgotten. And His conclusion remarkably is, Go eat your food with gladness. Drink your wine with a joyful heart, for it is now that God favors what you do. Always be clothed in white and always anoint your head with oil. Enjoy life with your wife, whom you love all the days of this meaningless life that God's given you under the sun. That Even though there's empty things that people are pursuing, you enjoy. For this is your lot in life and in your toilsome labor under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For in the grave where you are going, there is neither working nor planning nor knowledge or wisdom. So, in other words... Do it now. Cherish God's blessing on your life with joy. Because life is brief. Enjoy, verse 7, enjoy, verse 8, enjoy, verse 9. Drastic shift of mood. It goes from we're all going to die to we should all enjoy living. That's a, that's a major spiritual attitude adjustment. We've all heard optimist and pessimistic jokes. So this week I, was, I went to a website where there's a long list. I'm reading through it, trying to find a joke I could tell about this, but I knew none of you would laugh. <laughs> that was a pessimist joke. Are you, are you an optimist spiritually? Because God's calling you to be. Are you a spiritual optimist? We need to think about that a little bit. This is not about um, the philosophy of positive thinking, which can be a godless kind of ignore that you're going to die. Don't worry, be happy thing. This is totally God-focused, saying, God created me, and he has me alive today. And I am to enjoy whatever he gives me. I am to live in joyful gratitude. How much life do you think you have left? We've all played with the math, kind of, in our minds, haven't we? I uh, found a state of Wisconsin life expectancy study from 2017. Fascinating. Wisconsinite men at birth have a 78-year life expectancy. Women, you have a 82-year life expectancy. We kind of knew that. 
But there's a table then that shows that your average expectancy increases based on the age you've, attend, you've attained. Um, since I've attained 63 successfully, my life expectancy is now raised from 78 to about 85. So the chart said I have a 22.6 year life expectancy starting now, 22.6. I can look at that positively or negatively. I can say, honey, I'm down to 22 years, next year's 21. <laughs> or I can think, wow, honey, I have 22 more years to enjoy life and to do what God calls me to do. Which are you? Here's a little test about your, maybe it's your natural nature. Supernaturally, we can overcome this. But let's say you, you're on a 10-day vacation that you have looked forward to. You are, you are exactly where you want to be, doing exactly what you want to do, and the weather is just like you want. No snow. Unless you love snow. 10-day vacation, you're on day five. What are you thinking? Five more days to enjoy this. Or, bummer, vacation's half over. What's your tendency? See, God is calling us to say, enjoy your food. Enjoy what you're drinking because you're taking nourishment, okay? And that's a good thing. In Psalms. Psalm 90, verse 12, teach us to number our days so that we may gain a heart of wisdom. So doing some calculations is not a bad thing. If it's for the purpose of living wisely. Think about it. This is the day to think about it. Or in the New Testament, Ephesians 5, redeeming the time, which is a way of saying making the most of it, because the days are evil. In other words, while the world may be going mad, we're supposed to be maximizing the time. It really doesn't matter what's going on out there because God's called us to enjoy life individually where we are. So what does that look like? He, he gets very specific now and says, eat your food with gladness. Most meals we eat with madness. Cram something down and out the door you go. Maybe this season where there's not so much going on out there has caused us to have to actually eat at home and look at each other a little bit more. Eat your food with gladness. Drink your wine with a joyful heart. Good medium roast coffee would do it for me. God has favored. Here's why. God has favored what you do you may have the word approves or accepted what you do. There's a sense of saying that God has given you life and he's making sure that you are, when you take that, when you take nourishment, it's because he wants you to live and he is approving his plan for you. So what is that plan? Is it all about you? It starts with you enjoying that life, and then eventually he'll get to the point of saying, whatever God's given you to do, do it. 
verse 10. So God's favored what you do. So when you, when you take a meal today, think about the fact that God wants you to keep living. That's why you can absorb nourishment. Because when you can't absorb nourishment, you know it's over. One of the temptations of having so many screens in our lives is that a temptation is that during mealtime, you kind of take your food and you look at a screen somewhere. Sometimes we disperse to different rooms, watch something we do so little, sitting down together, praying in gratitude, and eating with actual conversation that can lead to either good thinking or good laughing. When do you do that as a couple? When do you do that as a family? Doesn't work all the time, but when do you make it work? Gladness, joyful heart. Maybe that's one of the keys. With those who know you best, who are with you, wherever you dash off to, people who work with you, people who live next door, people who are in your family, would they say you have gladness and a joyful heart? Or are we so, are we so prosperous that we can't appreciate cereal and eggs and hamburgers and coffee and heat vents and fuzzy blanket on, blanket on the sofa? So eat your meals with gladness. Secondly, always be clothed in white and always anoint your head with oil. Really saying enjoy celebrations and special events. If verse 7 is about gratefully enjoying God's provisions, I think verse 8 is about gratefully enjoying relationships. Dress up. Wearing white and applying oil to your head was like, you know, you do something with your hair, you know. You do that not for yourself. You do that when you're going to be with people. When we are living in a spiritually negative mindset, we tend to isolate. As Pastor Seth shared uh, so well last week, our need to be together. And it's like he's saying, put away your work-at-home clothes and, and figure out a way for you to somehow be in your meet-people clothes. Wherever, wherever you're comfortable, just make sure you can be with people. Enjoy celebrations. Sing happy birthday loud, even if it's off key. Have a barbecue with somebody as soon as you can, weather-wise. Play games with someone. Have a pizza party. At the first sign of spring, surprise your family with a picnic. Take a walk with someone. If it's too cold out there, you saw on the bulletin, come take a walk here. If you can do figure eights or something. and Got some coffee tables there. We need each other. Relationships matter. And if you're more introverted, get to know one more person. And if you're more extroverted, host a party and invite the introverts. 
Verse 9, enjoy marriage to your spouse. Enjoy life with your wife whom you love all, this, all the days of this meaningless life that God has given you under the sun. Solomon wrote this, I wonder, you know, towards the end of his life, I, I'm convinced, but I, I wonder if he wrote it sadly, realizing that he couldn't love 700 wives and mistresses. Was he looking longingly at the couple devoted to one another? That they had that rich, understanding, vulnerable, exclusive love that he wrote about so well, about probably his first love in Song of Solomon. Whom you love, you chose her. She chose you. There was something there that emerged in a vow to one another. And it's written specifically to husbands because we need to take the lead on this. We are the initiators. We, we show what it means to sacrifice. We should be the first to love, the first to apologize. So if your marriage is struggling, or maybe just stalling, invest in it, Think about where your pride, your selfishness is an issue. If you deal with your pride and your selfishness, you've taken the rug out from under your problems. To nourish your marriage, maybe get a good Christian book and read it together. If you talk to one of us as pastors, we each probably have a couple of favorites. There's books in our library. Read it for yourself. Don't do that. Slip it on the table like you need this, honey. Not going to go well. If you're stuck, seek help. But always seek the Lord. If you've drifted because of bitterness, take seriously what it means to forgive like Christ. If you've drifted because you're on different tracks, separated most of the time, stop something so you intersect more frequently. Figure out your wife, your husband's love language. Bless them. Do the dishes for her. Brag on your husband. Brag on your husband to your husband. It never gets old. Take that vacation that you've put off because one of you will die before the other. And so your anniversary expectancy is actually less than your life expectancy. Verse 10 moves on to what we might call our work, but it's whatever God's assigned us to do. And we're actually going to save that for next week because it opens up the, the dialogue that takes place in really the next couple of passages of how to wisely be doing what God calls us to do. If there's a clear, bold theme in verses 7, 8, and 9, it's clearly the word joy. In spite of the looming storm clouds of death, you could say. Joy. So let's, let's take a test. Just sample. Self-evaluation. This is not graded except by you. Joyful or Joyless. Are you marked by hopefulness or fearfulness? 
these, these two, first of all, these two columns, the first is about that which gives joy and the other is that which steals joy. What characterizes you? Encouraging or critical? How do you, how do you, what's your, when you see people, do you think about how to encourage them or kind of what they're doing wrong? God-focused or focused on circumstances? Because it's entirely different. It, it transforms you if you focus on what God is saying versus what's happening out there in the world. Where's your confidence? Is it in Christ? In other words, what is, what is the Lord teaching me these days? Or is it, who can I get to join my side and agree with me? Marked by inner peace or anxiety? Philippians 4, 6 says, be anxious about nothing, but you're going to have to keep practicing this with prayer and thanksgiving all the time. Are you marked by genuine smiles or public smiles and private scowls? Anybody can smile. The muscles work. We're socially aware enough that we, we know how to smile. Because it come from within. Are we others-centered? This is, this is transforming or selfish because doing for others has a, flips a switch, if you will, when you're truly serving. And it's a joy switch. What we say, is it grateful words or complaints? How do we, what do we tend to talk about? Are we transparent or secretive? Because when we're, when we're transparent, it's kind of like, it's a release valve that, hey, I make mistakes. I've got weaknesses. Pray for me. Secretive, we maintain, can't let anybody know. Are we flexible? Okay, we can do it your way. Or controlling, we'll do it my way. Ultimately, humility or pride. Humility is, I may be wrong. Pride is, but I'm not. One is joy-giving, one is joy-stealing. And the issue is that joyful people impact others for good and for God. And so the wisdom that we will find in the coming weeks here is that if we're going to have an impact, we've got to, under, we've got to grapple with joy in light of the brevity of life. So it's good we face our mortality. We only have so many days, months, years. So what is God blessing you with? And then begin to think, so what will I do differently? You only have so many years to pray with your kids at night. You only have so many years to laugh around meals with certain people or to go to ice cream and get two scoops or to host a birthday party or to play peekaboo with a baby in your life or to snuggle with your wife on the sofa. Don't wait. Don't wait. Tomorrow's one last day. Let's pray. Father, help us to consider serious joy.
A joy that's based in a conviction that you have us alive for a reason. And therefore, we're, we're safe in your hands. And we can enjoy what you provide. We can enjoy each other. We can enjoy family around us. And it's a deep joy when you're the one that gave it. So we thank you for all the big and little things in our, in our view, but it's all because you're a big God and you care for little us. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.